Captain's log, stardate 68927.1. We have made contact with a strange subset of species Homo sapiens. They seem to be consumed with all things technological. At first, we feared that they were a newly assimilated unit of the Borg Collective. Thankfully, we've determined that is not the case. They are simply citizens of tech. And on today's show, unicorns watching your every move, reducing your electricity consumption, bikes as in bicycles, believe it or not, IP surveillance cameras, E3 bombshells, tiny robotic lassos, and more. So buckle into your aluminum falcon and prepare to jump to hyperspeed as we dive into this week's edition of Citizens of Tech. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com, where I mostly blog about networking stuff, but other uh, techie things trickle in there now and again. And with me is Eric Zutfin. Zutfin on Twitter. You can read my blog, Zutfin.com, where I mostly write about all things technological, not so much networking. So I carry the flip side of Ethan's. <laughs> the format of this show is we talk about the present, and then we go to the past, and then we talk about the future of things techie. And it's not just apps and gadgets. It's, um, I mean, there is some of that, but it's just anything we think is nerdy and interesting to technically minded people. So let's jump right into the present. Eric, you found this story about unicorns a live stream app that lets strangers watch you use your phone yeah when i first read the headline uh every move you make every breath you take i'll be watching you popped into my head (laughs) um i I mean there's there's a valid use case for this but basically yeah this this just live stream live streams you using your phone it's called unicorns which i mean why not right i guess Anytime there's something fancy and technological, it's unicorns. Unicorn, make a unicorn reference. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it, so it's seriously called unicorns. Its intended audience is developers, um, people trying to do game demos or walkthroughs like Let's Plays. You can find those on YouTube, things like that. Um, anyone that needs to give a presentation of an app on a phone, basically. And that intended use case makes sense to me. But people are using it to share everything they're doing on their phone. And and that's just a, a creeping a bit to me to to let everyone watch you do everything on so your phone. So it, it, it's like a it's like a screen cap of what you're doing on your phone like a screen share in real time. Yeah. So it's not just, using the camera to watch you. It's it's a screen share of you of your phone's screen. Right. So if you're texting or sending emails or, you know, browsing <sighs> the web or um it, it, there are some serious oversharing information issues uh, that that have already surfaced. One guy that did a a brief uh, review of it, he accidentally shared his pin with everyone that was watching his stream. <laughs> Oops! <laughs> because you know the on your iPhone the numbers light up as you tap them. Exactly. Yeah. And so he shared his pin with everyone, and and he he still stands by that he thinks that you know. There's a market for this and that it's not that big of a concern, even though he had to change his pin and, you know, change his password to his Apple ID. And this is, this is a user error, though, in, in a sense. I mean, it's not exactly what this app is tend, uh, intended for. Right. It, it, it's people using this for something that it isn't really intended for. But for some people, some reason, people just feel the need to share everything they're doing. 
Yeah. And flush that whole privacy thing right down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that oh. the guy, this guy, Owen Williams, uh, who, who did a, a review of it for the next web said, think about what Twitch did for games that nobody seemingly thought others would watch. All right. Let, now let me tell you my understanding of Twitch from my son, who mm-hmm. who is part of that community. Um, Twitch is you record videos or no, you, this is the live streaming part of your, uh, your, your, your game. Correct. So you have some capture box that sits in your HDMI stream and turns it into IP streams it to Twitch. And then Twitch will stream your live game uh, out to the rest of the world. Is that about right? Yeah. And I mean, people make a living off of this now. Yeah. yeah he's told me about this. Some of the, the, the really big names on Twitch um, accept donations yep. and because they have, hundreds of thousands or in a few cases, millions of viewers, you know, five bucks here and five bucks there all heads up to a living playing yeah. games. Yeah. It, there's real money to be made. If you're, you know, one of the few that gets, you know, thousands of concurrent viewers and subscriptions. Yeah. So I guess unicorns would be, I guess if they're, that's what they're trying to compare it to, uh, you know, on, on the handheld, I mean, is the gaming on handhelds really that big of a market? Because I mean, I played Angry Birds and stuff, but no one's ever going to watch me stream Angry Birds. But 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 I don't. That's not what I use my phone for, and I'm old, so maybe <laughs> you know, that, the kids really doing a lot with I the, mean, games the games. On the, phones? the games are definitely getting more immersive, more in depth on mobile. I mean, as as mobile chipsets have advanced and and the graphic processing power has has increased, the games are getting closer and closer to console level i mean you're never going to have well i won't say never in the near future you're not going to have a ps4 or xbox one quality you know immersive game on your phone but we're looking at stuff that just a few years ago was mainstream console gaming on phones and tablets at this point so Mm. i mean i can see it having a market how big that market will be i don't know um is it is it going to be the next big thing like Twitch? I'm doubtful of that, but who knows? I mean, Twitch may be looking to get into the market as well. And at that point, if if this is being you know hyped for game walkthroughs and live plays and things like that, then if Twitch gets into the market, then this is probably a moot point. But again, for the use case that they're pitching here, it makes sense. Yeah, this reminded me of a couple of other apps. You know, one is Periscope that I keep hearing about. Uh, I listen to the Tim Ferriss show, which probably a lot of you that listen to this podcast listen to that show as well, because uh, it it really hits at a lot of technical people. Um, and Periscope, it, the way I understand it is it lets you live cast from your phone through. So, not like Unicorn, where it's doing a screen app, uh, or Unicorns, where it's doing a screen app or a screen capture. And streaming that, it's actually using your camera to live stream you and your life is what I see Periscope uh, doing. And I've seen um, some interesting stories about it, like you want to watch someone who's going down a roller coaster in Japan. You can do that if someone's streaming such a thing. You know, that 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 sort of an idea. Life, I, it reminded me of life casting, which was a hot thing not that many years ago, right? Yeah. And I, and to me, Periscope makes no sense and I have no interest in it, but it seems to have a lot of buzz with the young people. I made some smart remark tweet about it and, uh, and you get I, some it, kickback. I got some kickback. 
Come on, Banks, you're just old. Yeah, I guess I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> and then, then there was another app that I ran into. I think I heard about this one on uh, on a Tim Ferriss podcast as well, Perch.co, uh, which lets you use your tablet as a remote window in a coworker space. So if you, you, you basically hang your tablet on the wall, run the Perch.co app, and treat it so that you could see into some other worker that, because you work from home and they work from home, you would never see each other. Have it as a way in real time to kind of feel like you're there with them well, mm. is the idea, which seems pretty neat. And actually, that one I might try. Actually, Periscope could serve the same function for all I know. I haven't actually uh, tried either one of these yet. But, um, you know, Perch really seemed more aimed at the the home worker who works at a company where everybody's a home worker sure. and wanting to have that you know, shared community feel. So it's literally like looking through a window into the other person's office. As yeah, it were. that's how they presented in the demo videos. Yeah, it seemed pretty neat. It's an interesting idea. So, Well, hey, let's move on. You and I have both gone through this exercise of, uh, of saving electricity, and as we were comparing notes before the show, I guess we've both had a lot of success here where we've cut our electric consumption in, uh, in half. Yeah, it, almost, almost exactly 50% for me. And pretty much the same for me. I went from roughly 40 kilowatt hours per day at a high. I'm down under 20 right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost I'm a little higher than that. I think we were we were actually almost 60 and we're at about 30 now mm. um, with a, a, a large family with a lot of electric appliances. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the the switch, um, we have very few. I think we might only have one incandescent light bulb left. Uh, everything is either LED or CFL. We're trying to stay away from CFLs at this point because the, the warming up factor and yes. the flicker. And- yeah, that, that's been one of the big strategies that I, I went on this crusade. I, oh, I got to just, just pause from it and say I had this, mom- this moment of I can't take it anymore. My electric bill was up over 300 bucks for a month's worth of consumption. Yep. I was like, what? is going on and uh you know in the market that we're in we have these uh there's the the main utility the uh called uh, eversource used to be uh public service in new hampshire now they call it eversource and they uh now there's this competitive marketplace where you can get your electrical supply through a bunch of different suppliers Mm -hmm. and i tried a different supplier called north american power only they don't lock you into a rate you get a starter rate, and then you got to kind of watch it to see what the deals are from there. And that was part of why my bill was so high. I was using them. Uh, and not watching. My, <laughs> and not watching. Nearly <laughs> close enough. And so uh, anyway, I went back to PSNH where my rate, or Eversource, where my rate was locked in. That got the money down, but it didn't change my consumption. So to right. change my consumption, I, uh, bulbs was the single biggest change I made. I've done LED bulbs almost all over the house, which aren't cheap, are they? No, they're not. Uh, you're for, for the high quality, you know, energy star approved ones. Cause there's a bunch of them out there that aren't energy star approved. They just haven't gone through the process yet for mm-hmm. certification, but I mean, you, they've come down a bit, but you're looking at in some cases pushing $20 for an led bulb. On the other hand, they are supposed to last for two decades or more. Yeah. I'm seeing the ratings on a lot of these bulbs as being uh, 22 years. Mm-hmm. 20, 22.8 sticks out in my hand. Like I saw that number a lot. Mm-hmm. How they come up with that exactly, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but let's just assume it lasts even 10 years. 
that's a lot longer than pretty much any bulb ever. Certainly a way longer than an incandescent bulb. Oh yeah, if you get a year out of an incandescent you're you're doing pretty well. So it, it's not just that you're putting a lot of money out to get these LED bulbs, and uh, it's that you're probably never going to have to replace them again, or, or there's a good chance you're never going to have to replace them again for as long as you're living in that uh, that house. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it was expensive. I'm not sure quite how much I put into bulbs. Maybe three hundred, four hundred by now. But if you're saving one hundred and fifty dollars a month, then that pays pay, for itself pretty quick. And 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 yeah, that's that's my point. Even Considering A, how long lasting they are, and then B, how much electricity we've actually been saving, mm. I think uh, they do pay for themselves pretty quickly. Um, but then, you know, I, I don't know what other big changes you made. I, uh, you know, the, the bulbs was the, the biggest, most visible thing. The, the other, the other big things that I've changed is uh, not leaving. Well, okay, my my office is in my basement, and my basement has one of those universal switches with. You know, I have six light bulbs on in the basement and, and all this. And making a conscious effort to leave all those lights off and only turn on my office lamp, which is now an LED, has made a big difference as well. Because instead of having six, they're all compact fluorescents, but they're still, I think, 30 watts or something like that. So if you have six of them, that's 180 watts burning. And if you're working for eight to 10 hours a day, then that really adds up to a lot of electricity. Yeah, so I, just not uh, using the lights. At, that I agree with that. I've I've run into the same thing where I've found natural light works really well. I don't have to like walk into the bathroom, which has an out, outside window, and turn a light on. Right. I don't need to. There's plenty of natural light in there during the day. You give yourself thirty um, seconds for your eyes to adjust or whatever. I, and then I've got uh, uh, landscape lighting outside. Not much, but I've got these eight little. Uh, 11 watt bulbs that mm-hmm. light up one side of my driveway well i used to run those for eight hours from dusk to plus eight hours whatever it was there's a little light sensor that drives them sure i changed that to four why leave them burning all night i don't need them on all night long i've got security lights that are up there that are motion sensitive they'll come on if they and need to yeah they'll come on if they need to so you know i i did stuff like that i had uh three monitors i was using on my workstation yep. i cut those down to one now, that's coincidental. I had done that because I was just trying to simplify my life anyway. Sure. But um, but I know that got me some power back. Um, I have a lab rack of equipment yep. that I use to test stuff. And I used to leave it on 24 by 7 because shutting's off, shutting it off, that, that's hard. It might take three minutes to start yeah. back up. <laughs> so, so not, but I don't do lab work every day. Sometimes right. I'll go a couple weeks or more and not use anything in that rack. So I've just started shutting it down, and when I need it, I'll power it back up again. Yep. Um, any any of the, the big ones for you? The other the other big one for us uh, was we have electric hot water. Mm. I switched from oil to electric back when oil was you know four dollars a gallon or whatever it was. I forget at this point because I switched, um, and electric was actually a little cheaper at the time. It's more expensive again because of the price of oil dropping, but. It's nice not to be worried about, oh, well, okay, how much is oil? How many gallons do we have? All that. So we've we've stuck with electric, um, but it gets pricey if you have a 40-gallon tank and long showers or, you know, little ones and they take baths and that chews up basically all the water in the tank. Yes. And you're reheating all of the water in the tank and it's just, you know, 
you you can almost hear the money being. <laughs> I think you just said children are expensive. Have you thought about getting rid of some of your children? <laughs> in a few years. In a few years. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the showering and and laundry. Um, you know, trying to use cold water for laundry instead of hot water or even warm water where it's feasible. Uh, yeah, we we've cut back on our dishwasher loads, and I I did some reading on what my dishwasher is capable of, which is a fairly new model, and it's got a feature called Smart Wash, where mm. it only runs until it, the soil sensor detects that okay, these are clean now, and yep. then it shuts down. And you can also shut off things like heated dry. Why do I need the, to run the heat to to dry these dishes? They'll drip dry. They're fine, and you're ostensibly rinsing them with hot water so they're already yeah. going to be hot yeah so just open exactly. the thing and let it air out yeah. yeah exactly so now one thing that was hard for me to cut back on was my electric stove because we we do we cook a lot of food we don't have a lot of we don't we, we use a lot of raw materials to prepare our meals and we sure. can do a lot of meal preparation at home mm-hmm. so it's been kind of hard to cut back on the electric stove um i haven't looked into natural gas you know, as an alternative, like getting a gas stove and to see if that would, you know, on the whole be cheaper. I'm not really sure that that's a possibility. And this, this stuff I could still do though. I mean, I know one thing I need to do is a trip around this house and look at all the little things that are plugged in that aren't getting used. Like, um, like I, I, I bought a set of these, um, high frequency noise generators that are supposed to drive away rodents and have a little led light built into them. Mm-hmm. They are woefully ineffective because <laughs> I have an, an, an abrasive arrogant squirrel that is living up over my garage right now. And I've got two of those things in there. He doesn't care. Yeah. He's like a honey badger. He don't care. <laughs> you know, so I got to pull those things out of the wall because they are doing no good and they're sapping some tiny amount of electricity. Some watt level. Yeah. Yeah. I could cut back on dryer use a little bit, maybe. I um, We have an electric dryer that we use to dry clothes. I could hang clothes. I'm a lazy man, what can I say? <laughs> but I could hang clothes, you know? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Oh. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. You know, being able to line dry clothes is a, is a big deal. Well, well, if we save the world from uh, from 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 electrical overconsumption? Very nearly. Very nearly. <laughs> Very nearly. We'll get well, there. So, well, let me, let me bring up another topic just real quick here that uh, kind of along these lines of being more conservative is it kind of occurs to me that I should drive my car less if I can. It's good for, and, and use a bike instead in this. I think this came when we were talking about the Mr. Money Mustache blog, right? Because that was yep. one of his things. And, and you know, reading his blog got me thinking about that. I used to bike all the time and when I was a kid. Oh yes, bicycle and me were friends, and I I drove all over the place on that thing. Well, that was your independence tool. Yeah, sure, exactly. You know, you could break away from the house, be your own person, and do do your thing, right? Um, but as I've gotten older, I'm very much in the American lifestyle, driving a car around. So that's just what I do <laughs> get from point A to point B. In these parts, we drive everywhere, and uh, and and. But then I said, okay, why why not get a bicycle and start trying to use a bicycle for things? And eventually I'm going to get a trailer and this kind of stuff. That's the idea. Um, well, I got I ordered a bicycle from Nash Bar. Nash Bar being a big online retailer of uh, bicycles. And they have a bike called the Trekking Bike where you get a lot of bike for not a lot of money. Uh, I ordered one of these things on sale, got a great discount on it. It showed up. And it's mostly put together. You've got to finish assembling it. And I did okay with all that. And now I'm at the part of needing to adjust the gearing in this uh, thing. And specifically the front derailleur. Yep. All right, tech nerds. 
adjusting a bicycle front derailleur. I did a little bit of YouTubing. There's some great YouTube videos on this. If you search, they come up. Um, and it seems like there are the, the, the whole issue here is with your, your front derailleur. This is the thing that is pushing the chain between the sprockets uh, that go around your front crank. And, the, and on this particular bike, there's three. There's a teeny one, a middle-sized one, and then a big uh, ring on the outside. So the derailleur has got to be able to push the chain to all the different sprockets, uh, do it smoothly, not push the chain off the edge one way or the other. Yep. And uh, and not be lim- and and then also when it's in position, not have the chain rub against one side of the derailleur or the other. So there's a lot of it's actually kind of hard to get this thing right. All right. So this this is just brief. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just thought this would be interesting as I've you know researched how to do this. You've really got four adjustments you can make. There's a barrel adjuster that's going to be up at the top, which will adjust the, it's like a fine-tuning adjustment. So you can turn this barrel adjuster that's going to be up near the um, uh, front derailleur control that you use with your hands to uh, to make a, a very fine-tuned adjustment. Then there's cable tension where you're actually, you know, that's actually one of the things the barrel adjuster does is cable tension. But then you've got a main cable tension adjustment, which is the screw down on the front derailleur. Yep. You actually pull that through um, to get it roughly where you need it to and be, then, and then you tweak it with the barrel adjuster. And then there's an upper limit screw and a lower limit screw that limits, as you might think, how high the derailleur can go and how low the derailleur can go left to right as you uh, as you push on the on this. Now, I, I bring this up because it sounds easy, right? Well, you turn the right screw, fiddle with the barrel adjuster, you'll be there, no problem. I... I'm not a stupid man and consider myself to be mechanically inclined, but I'll tell you what, trying to get this thing adjusted, I have not, <laughs> I got it from pretty much working and just needing a slight adjustment out of the box as it came from Nash Bar. To completely broken. To completely broken, not shifting at all well, couldn't get into third gear anymore, and I just backed everything out and started realizing the mistakes that I was making as I went. It's actually a little bit complicated. You I fixed need to spend... it until it was broken. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Well, I imagine, I mean, it, in, in the tweaks that I've done, it's been quite a few years since I've had to adjust a, a front de- derailleur. But it's one of those things where you change one of the things, one of the settings, and it throws off two of the others, right? Because if you change the tension, then it's going to change the amount of well movement. Uh, on. So so uh, here's one of the changes they made. I adjusted the high. The problem I'm having is the left side of the derailleur rubs against the chain. I need to get a little bit lower. And I said, oh, okay, I'll just adjust the, the, high, uh, uh, the high limit screw so that it doesn't go quite so high. Mm-hmm. That just made it so that I couldn't shift into high into gear. Into the third sprocket, <laughs> no, yeah. right. It just blew that, blew that up. So I, I think where I'm at now, I'm going to go back and watch the videos again. I think I actually need to tweak the cable tension a little bit, pull it, pull it off just a little bit of where it is. Yep. Because as I adjusted cable the, with the barrel adjuster, I adjusted some cable tension, and I got, I actually started making progress towards where I want to go. It's just the barrel adjuster doesn't take me as far as I need to go to get it right. So I think if I actually adjust the, the main cable tension and just uh, pull out a little bit of cable, I'll be more where I need to be, but. You think you're techie and you think you're smart. Okay, my friend, go tackle a front derailleur and see how you do. So lesson learned is just get a beach cruiser. <laughs> one, one speed. speed. There you go. That's Pedal speed. brakes. <laughs> uh, so, hey, Mr. Gaming Guy, you had a lot of stuff on uh, e- E3, I guess. This is a big gaming conference. Tell me about this. Yeah, thing. the Electronic Expo something. 
blah blah. Yeah, You're really into it. Then I can. I tell. am super into it. <laughs> For some reason, the third E is escaping, or the first E in this case. Anyhow, yeah. So E three was this week, and I was I mostly caught the news after the fact. I wasn't tuned into any of the live streaming events or anything like that. But um, some really big headlines were made, and a lot of it has to do with either sequels that were thought you know never to happen it had been too long or old games uh being brought back to life or in this case the xbox one actually is going to be including xbox 360 backwards compatibility yeah which as i remember when xbox one came out last year uh was last year the year before anyway this is 2015 years ago now so it's two years ago now I was I was trying to decide should I wait for the Xbox One or get an Xbox 360 and I was it was more a decision for my son than for me because I knew I wasn't going to play the games very much. Right. I was looking at it going, wow, it's really expensive and you can't play the old Xbox 360 games and it's kind of like, eh, no. And so I went with the 360, and you know, and then I've just been waiting for Microsoft to go. Gosh, people really want to play their old Xbox 360 games. Maybe we should support that somehow. Finally, yeah. So they, I mean, backwards compatibility has been a big deal uh, for for years. The the original PlayStation 2 could play PlayStation 1 games because the I.O. processor on it was actually the old CPU of the PlayStation 1. And so the, the PS2 originally could, could play PS1 games, and then the PS3, when it came out, originally could play PS2 games, but they wanted to make it cheaper to manufacture, so they stripped out that. Um, they also wanted to continue to sell PS2s, which were still selling at the time. Mm. Um, the Wii could play GameCube games. Uh, this is it's it's always a nice feature to have on a new system because when a system launches, you might have you know five, ten, maybe fifteen games available. But if there's seven hundred games for the previous platform that will run on it, you already have a library built up uh, in many cases from from the previous system. So when Microsoft cut this feature from the Xbox one for launch, no one expected it to come back, but they're actually writing an emulation layer for the Xbox 360. That'll be part of the core OS. So basically you'll take an Xbox 360 game, pop it into your Xbox one. And instead of, as I understand it, instead of actually playing off that Xbox 360 disc, it's going to connect to Microsoft server and pull down a version of the game that's been specially uh, tweaked to run on the Xbox One. So this this might, sounds like it might be like the original Xbox versus Xbox 360, where some of the original Xbox games will work on the 360, but not all of the original Xbox games would work on a 360. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It had to be specifically developed that way and, and all this, where this is this is a big move, and, and the hope is that a lot of developers will sign on to have their games essentially remastered to work with this. Mm. Um, so th- that was one of the big items from Microsoft at E3. Well, do, I mean, do, do we know is Xbox One or Xbox One sales not what they were hoping? And this is part of a drive to try to boost Xbox One console sales. Do you know they've been doing a lot to try to boost the sales because they, uh, at least at launch, and honestly, I haven't paid too close of an attention to uh, since the launch. They were outsold on the P- by the PS4. By a huge margin. The Xbox One is actually slightly less powerful. Um, Many of its games can't run in full 1080p. 
if it's running at 60 frames a second with, you know, all the widgets and, mm. and gizmos turned on and the graphics settings. And so there's a lot of 720p uh, interlaced games out there that aren't true 1080p. Um, and they they have had a hard time. Now, they, they have a lot of console exclusives and, and they've been gaining a lot of ground um, getting the, you know, getting Top Gear signed on for uh, Forza Motorsports and uh, uh, several console exclusives have have helped a lot. But, I mean, Microsoft was positioning the Xbox One to be not just the gaming console. And that was one of the big things I remember about the launch is like the gaming features were almost de-emphasized. They were, it was going to be your home entertainment system. It was going to be the way you consume movies and streaming. It was going to be, you know, in the middle of your digital life, you know, the box that was inside your media room hooked up to your big screen TV doing all that stuff. And I remember thinking back at the time, yeah, but no one wants that. No one wants that box to do those things. I want to play games on it. That's why I'm buying an Xbox. I want it to be the most amazing gaming machine with the most incredible graphics uh, and other cool things that are going to enhance my gaming experience. I don't care about all the rest of that stuff. Yeah, for a lot of people, that's exactly the case. And then there are people who, you know, they don't want a separate Blu-ray player and a separate streaming streaming box and a separate game machine yeah. and, and all that. So I, they've, they've got to play, they've got to balance on this fence of how much do we include, how much do we, fo- you know, what do we focus our resources on and, and all this. Um, but it, it does seem like they are trying to push the consoles. They've got some deals where if you trade in an Xbox 360 or a PlayStation 3, I forget through which retailer it may be GameStop or something, but they'll give you $175 off your Xbox one. Um, so that it, it seems like they're trying to push the hardware. Mm. Now, speaking of hardware, Microsoft has, uh, they, they debuted a while ago now, HoloLens, which I'm sure you probably heard of. Rings a bell. Yeah. It's, um, their headset for what they, you know, what the term has, has come to the market is augmented reality. So to clarify, this is not virtual reality like Oculus or the HTC Vive, um, but it's augmented reality. So there's an overlay in, you know, the real world. Like the Terminator. Basically like the Terminator. Yes, you will destroy all humans. Awesome. That's Um, what I always wanted. (laughs) So when, when people have tried on the HoloLens, they've really far, far and away been blown away by the implementation. and. There was no exception at E3 this year with Halo and Minecraft because Microsoft, if folks aren't aware, bought Mojang, the creators of Minecraft. And everyone was sort of wondering, well, what happens now? And they have been building this Minecraft HoloLens integration where I was reading a review of this guy who was using the Minecraft HoloLens combination. He said it was unlike anything he's ever used before. And he could pan around and resize blocks. And basically, wherever he looked in the real world, there was, a, there was a table. And wherever he looked on the table, there was the reticle that, you know, you always see in Minecraft when you're looking at a block. It tells you what block you're looking at and all this. And he was like, I could just use my fingers and pinch to shrink it, you know, expand to, to grow the block. And he's interacting with this thing as if it's there in front of him on the table. Okay, so so I, I think I'm starting to understand this now. It sounds like the game is being overlaid on top of the physical real world. Exactly. 
Ah, so, okay, you said augmented reality, and the first thing that popped in my head was some of the early AR stuff that I've seen where, like, there was an app where you could hold your phone up to a sign that was in uh, not your native language, and you couldn't read it, and it would translate it to your native language. Sure. Um, or there was there was a one that really worked very badly, but it was intended for people out in the wilderness where you could hold your phone up to the horizon, and it would show you the peaks it would you know have an overlay that would show you the peaks that were laid out in front of you. It it just, in my experience, didn't work at all. It well. was good in concept, but yeah. yeah, it was good good idea. But but this you're talking actually the game becomes part of your physical world, right? Through yeah, that you see through this lens, yeah, mm. and it overlays it in this really cool, you know. And I'm speaking from third hand knowledge here, but from what I've gleaned from my reading and videos that I've watched and things. Um, because it's it's a tightly controlled thing. You couldn't take pictures at this event or anything. Um, but from the the descriptions, mm. it's it's a really neat idea. Well, it sounds more compelling than the, the 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 VR set that we were talking about in the Oculus world, where uh, you have to you you get to integrate with this prefabbed physical world, and then there's um, then it overlays on top of that physical world, so you have that touch sensation. Right. You don't get the touch sensation with this, but it sounds far more flexible. Then if you integrate something like, was it Glove One we talked about on the last mm-hmm. show with all the vibration sensors and actuators that are in the glove, um, you could come up with a pretty comparable experience, I think, without having to rely on a faux physical yeah, environment. Yeah, a dedicated physical environment right. that's custom built for the software. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's interesting times ahead for augmented reality and virtual reality so then just to rapid fire through some of the big game announcements um there's a new doom coming out which it's been several years since doom 3 uh hit markets sure yeah uh, so doom was they they basically opened up the show with that and there's star wars battlefront that's coming out yes that's a great game oh man the star wars battlefront looks amazing and it's pre out the, the footage they showed was pre-alpha and it still looked amazing um if for anyone that's you know even mildly into star wars check out the the uh alpha footage that they showed it, it looks great uh gears of war 4 was announced which honestly i've never played a gears of war game um but they're supposed to be really the graphics look way over the top awesome. oh yeah yeah looks amazing uh mass effect andromeda was announced and so this will be um It'll be, I think, three years, four years. I forget at this point since the last Mass Effect. That's coming out in 2016. Here's one that shocked me, Mirror's Edge. Uh, it's a sequel or a remake. I, I didn't really catch which it is, but it's been eight years since the original Mirror's Edge was released. Mm. And so that's a pretty hefty gap between sequels. Now, we're not talking about Half-Life 2, Half-Life 3 gap, if Half-Life 3 ever happens. <laughs> but um it's it's significant. Eight years is a, a huge difference. And the so the concept with Mirror's Edge is it's basically it's a parkour, first person parkour game. Oh. And it's really, really cool. Uh it's very immersive and you have to, you know, jump off of different surfaces to get away from these police forces that are chasing you because you're this courier that, you know, uh delivers information that has been deemed illegal or whatever. So it's a, it's a really neat concept for game. And so in, in the new one, there's even more focus on that parkour aspect, apparently. Um, Dark Souls 3 was announced as well, which I don't know if you've heard of Dark Souls, but it's basically 
um, the the goal of it is to be as insanely difficult as possible. So it's like a throwback to you know early NES games that like, Battletoads pops to mind, where if you didn't have your timing a memorized and b flawlessly executed, you wouldn't make it through the level. And, and again, that's the you're, you're catering to a very specific kind of gamer that's looking for a particular challenge. Right. It's a high difficulty level. Yeah. Um, you you don't know what to expect when you go into a new area, and you're going to die a lot. And you have to learn from those deaths and learn, okay, don't do that again, idiot, you know, or, oh, it does that and I didn't expect it it to do that. It almost sounds like a puzzle game combined with a first person shooter. Yeah, it's basically um, Rage Quit Simulator. Uh, (laughs) If you ever watch people do Let's Plays, because I I honestly haven't played any Dark Souls, but it's it's an action RPG and just people get so fed up. It's like. 27 attempts on this boss and i can't beat it and so they stop you know they stop recording for the day and come back the next day and try to record more yeah um so that that's a big one that they've been printing money with dark souls lately because there's a pretty big demographic that's into that Mm. uh the probably the biggest well okay the second biggest one that caught my attention was fallout 4 uh if you're not familiar with the fallout series basically it's um post-nuclear apocalypse and it's a survival. You have my attention. Yes. And uh, you, you should definitely check out Fallout 3. It takes place in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, then there's Fallout New Vegas, which takes place, obviously, in Vegas. But it's these are I would, I would take a perverse delight in the Vegas one just because I've, I've had to travel there for conferences. <laughs> I do not like that town. I just don't. <laughs> So to see it as a nuclear wasteland would just be, I don't, I don't even care if I got to kill zombies or something, just to walk around and see it destroyed and be like, yeah, the good guys won. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, in Fallout, in the Fallout series, uh, it's, you're basically, it's a, it's a first person RPG. So you, it, it plays almost like a doom or whatever, except it has RPG elements. You level up different abilities and things like this. Fallout 4 uh, had long been rumored to be taking place in Boston because people saw Bethesda, the company that, that makes it doing basically recon work in Boston, taking tons of photographs and things like that around in and around Boston. And they confirmed uh, just before E3 actually, that it is taking place in Boston. So as a new Englander, I am all on board with this to see, you know, Boston as the landscape for fallout Four. pretty, pretty exciting for me. And um, my buddy Jeff, who did, uh, shows five and six with me is from Boston. Mm-hmm. And so he's, uh, he's all excited, even though he's not a fallout guy. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that's around the corner in, uh, it, by the end of the year, supposedly. Um, so the next one on the list here is just cause three, which, uh, just cause series is sort of an open world, almost like grand theft auto, except without, um, you can't just go bowling and stuff like that. <laughs> um so just cause is you the big thing in there is you have this grappling hook and a parachute so you can grapple between buildings or like latch on to vehicles as they're passing by and basically like parasail or you know hijack an airplane and jump out of it and parachute down and all this just cause three just takes it up to the next level and gives you like a wingsuit so you know those videos where you see the guys like flying down the side of the mountain in a wingsuit it gives you a wingsuit so you can use your grappling hook to launch yourself from the ground and fly around the city and stuff. It's oh brother, yeah, okay. it's crazy. I I have I own Just Cause two, and I've probably put I don't know fifteen or twenty hours into it in my life. 
and I think I've done maybe two or three missions because it's just fun to rope yeah. around and jump out of airplanes <laughs> and stuff like that. Missions, yeah. Yeah, who needs them? Um, Kingdom Hearts 3 was announced by Square Enix, which is a Disney-themed RPG uh, that people have been clamoring for for years. Again. Uh, no, they haven't. Okay, they what? haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, again, I have never played a Kingdom's Heart, Kingdom Hearts, but people love them and have been looking for a sequel. So that was a big one. Now, the big one that really got me was when I saw news that uh, Square Enix is releasing a Final Fantasy VII remake, which people have, I mean, it's been 18 years since Final Fantasy VII was released on the PlayStation 1 and that was really the the big game that got me into RPGs. I had played some, but this was the first one that really sucked me into the story and and got me invested in the characters. 18 years ago. 18 years ago. I mean, it was a launch title with Dude, you're old. Yeah. Yeah, I was wow. a teenager. I had my license. Um when it came out. And so I had played some of the original, like Final Fantasy 3 was on the Super Nintendo, and that was actually Final Fantasy 6 in Japan, but they renamed it 3 in America because whatever, because we're weird. Um, and so Final Fantasy 7 came out and blew my mind. It, it was, um, it had full motion video, you know, CGI cutscenes, uh, fully pre rendered backgrounds. The story and the characters were great. So when they, they teased when the play, uh, PlayStation 3 came out with a Final Fantasy VII uh, cutscene. It was the, the intro from the original game, but remastered to run on the, the PlayStation 3. And everyone was like, oh, they're going to remake it. <laughs> and they never did. And they were like, no, nah, no, we're not. We were just showing what we can do, basically. So everyone was sort of you know, so, sorry flipping the virtual that. bird to Sony <laughs> over that and Square. So... They released footage of Final Fantasy VII Remake on the PS4, and I do not own a modern generation console, and this might change it. <laughs> did, did you cry? Almost. No. <laughs> but the, the, the scope and the, the, just the task that they've undertaken in, in remaking it is astonishing, and it's uh, sort of it's a running joke on the internet that if Square Enix ever had problems, they had their in case of emergency, break glass, and there was a Final Fantasy VII remake logo underneath. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they've had, a, they've had a bit of a rough uh, stretch for a while here with the disastrous launch of Final Fantasy XIV that they actually had to relaunch uh, shortly after the initial launch. Or not so shortly. I think it was a year and a half or something. So they, the uh, goodwill coffers have been low lately, so it seems like they're finally breaking that glass. And then the, the, the last big one is The Last Guardian, which is part three of what is technically not a trilogy, but people are calling it a trilogy. There's Ico and the Shadow, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which are these um, grand sort of adventure games from the PlayStation 2 era. And Ico and Shadow of the Colossus sort of set the bar for um, especially Shadow of the Colossus, what the PlayStation 2 could actually do graphically. Mm. It had huge open worlds um, 
you know, it, you look at it now and you go, eh, they were doing the best they could. But at the time, it was groundbreaking graphically. Well, you say huge open worlds, and those those are my favorite sort of maps to interact with. Yeah. Um, so even in a first-person shooter, like I played Unreal and Unreal Tournament for a long time, the first-person shoot-ups that are happening inside a building were never as entertaining for me as being outside. Yep. But outside, if the worlds got detailed, you would suffer with all the polygon renders. Uh, if you had any kind of heavy detail in the outside world, so it was it was always a struggle to do those kind of maps. So, yeah, but but they were still my favorite. I just loved them, being able to see to the horizon and oh, just great. Yeah, yeah. And I'll throw back to Fallout for you there because you have miles and miles and miles of square, you know, area to explore and see and just see, you know, buildings that are dilapidated and. You know, there's yeah, there's bad guys to shoot and whatever, but it's the just the scenery is amazing. So those were the those were the biggest uh, hmm. items that I I found from E3. Feel free to let me know if if I missed anything that really piqued your interest. Tweet it to us at Citizens of Tech. Um, but that's that's my E3 coverage. Well, let's move on to Death Watch. Then uh, I thought we'd give a give a mention to the Ello social network ELLO, which. Uh, they peaked before they launched, <laughs> I think is what happened. I think they're actually launching the day we're recording this. Coincidentally, yeah. They'd kind of we were talking about a Death Watch candidate and didn't really have anything good, and then I was remembering what happened to Ello? <laughs> and I popped open to their site, uh ELLO uh, dot CO, and I signed in because I built an account quite a while ago. You know, on the front page they've got this um, you know, June eighteenth thing, you know, blinking away here. And uh, I, I, I believe that I believe the official launch is today. Is that is that right? That's how I that? understand yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, yeah, it's going nowhere. I, <laughs> and 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 the reason is, you know, a they did peak way too early. Yep. Um, and then B, I think people are really just so entrenched in Facebook and Twitter. Those two especially, there's just not room for anything else as a major play. I just I just don't get it. So I don't see how LO can get enough traction to build community that people are going to want to move from the communities they've already built on the platforms they've already got and move over to uh, LO or try to maintain yet another community in the LO world. Right. That's, That's the problem Google Plus has had. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Google Plus is a huge social network that, you know, is on a billion mobile devices and it's tied to everyone's Gmail accounts and all that. And most of us don't use it. And most of us don't use it. It's always a shock to me because I still cross post from my blogs and stuff over to G+. Yep. Every once in a while, I'll get this huge comment from somebody. It's like, oh, why didn't you comment on my blog like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> All I meant for you to do was see that I posted something and then go to my blog, not actually interact with me there because I never go there. I never go to Google+. And most people don't. Right. So I, I, I check it like once a day usually. In, instead of, you know, Twitter, which I'm checking far more frequently than that. So anyway, Ello, we're, we're calling it, putting it on the death watch list. We'll see how long it lasts. Yep. Um, so, Eric, what did you learn today? Today I learned that the inventor of the heart stent approached numerous companies for funding and was rejected every time. Ultimately, the heart stent was funded by the owner of Fuddruckers. <laughs> I love it who he met by chance on a golf course. So Fuddruckers, for those who are not aware, is a major burger chain. Yeah, it's kind of, a, kind of a build-your-own-burger. You go up to the counter, you order whatever basic burger you want, 
and then you can slather on any condiments you want. Lettuce and tomato and onions and, uh, you know, mayonnaise 17 and mustard. kinds and, of cheese. And, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the thing you design to stick in your face and give you a heart attack funds the thing that's going to save your heart so you can eat more Fuddruckers. So really, I suppose it was kind of a selfish thing. <laughs> it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. <laughs> I'm going to insert this cheeseburger into my face. I need a heart stent. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's my today mm. I learned. Well, all right, that brings us to the end of the present section. Let's move on to the past. And we're not going to park on the past too long today because we have uh, some stuff we want to talk about for the future uh, and spend more time there. But this past section, I just wanted to raise the awareness of the Computer History Museum that is in Mountain View, California. I've been there once uh, and it's pretty cool. So um, now that we're where this is 2015 that we're recording this, I mean, computers have got a pretty long history and there's a lot of interesting old stuff what was computing like 30 years ago 40 years ago 50 years ago and the computer history museum is uh, is the place so mountain view california is roughly the san francisco area it would be more south of that like headed down towards palo alto and so on okay yep um so that's the part of california it's in um if you go it's it would be worthwhile uh i'm going up to computerhistory.org and looking at their exhibits page they got a bunch of interesting stuff going on right now. Um, they've got the story of how computers came to be, their revolution exhibit. Um, the Babbage engine is, mm. uh, and they have an actual Babbage engine oh, on wow. display, which is super cool. Yeah, I've got some pictures of it from uh, from my visit. Uh, they've got an exhibit on visible storage, a computer history timeline exhibit. They are uh, the history and restoration of the groundbreaking computer, the PDP-1. So this is a PDP-1 restoration exhibit. Um, a history of computer chess, which is mm. pretty fascinating if you think about it, because it's really an AI kind of a construct. How yeah. do you how do you build that? Uh, and and then more. There's lots of other things. So for the past, we thought we'd just give some props to the Computer History Museum again, computerhistory.org, Mountain View, California. If you're in the area, um, it's I think if you're a nerd, it's definitely worth a visit. Then moving into the future, dude, you found the weirdest story here. It's so cool though. So, via Popular Mechanics, I found an article about tiny robotic tentacles that can lasso an ant. And they've got these pictures that show this happening. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, these things are, they're, they're two times the thickness of a human hair. So, they look like, they really look like short little bits of fishing line, more mm. than anything. Uh, but they can curl and grip things. And these things can be as small as an ant or a fish egg. So we're talking, you know, less than a millimeter across, really. Um, and they can they can grasp uh, very firmly, but very gently. So uh, basically, from the article here, a team of three material scientists at Iowa State University have just invented this new way for robots to softly handle delicate and diminutive objects. They described in their paper in the science journal Scientific Reports, uh, they call them micro-tentacles. They're hundreds of times smaller than the next, the next smallest self-spiraling lifelike tentacle, making them a unique tool for everything from microsurgery to microbiology. And the biggest thing here is, is that they curl and hug with less than one micronewton of force. 
So you're not going to kill the ant when you lasso it. Yeah, no. I mean, the, a micro newton is thousands of times softer than the muscles in your eyes when they blink. Mm. So it's it's incredibly gentle. So you're you'll be able to pick up incredibly small things without damaging them. Uh, and it makes mechanical pinching, which you know is the traditional approach for tiny claw grabbing. Uh, makes it as the article said absolutely medieval because yeah. it's so much more advanced. So getting a claw, a microscopic claw to work is going to be a much more difficult to be successful at gripping whatever it is you're trying to grip versus a microscopic lasso. Right. And the, the complexity of, you know, a claw mechanism with the multiple moving parts and all that, this, this reduces it down to this tiny, I mean, the image here of it grabbing this fish egg is it's astounding. Basically it's just wrapped around it and it's, it's holding it. There's no, you know, mechanical processes going on. So it, it, it doesn't need a power source. It doesn't. How do they manipulate this thing to be able to grip something? Did Honestly, they actually get into that in the article? They, they did not get into it um, that I saw, but I presume it's using an electrical charge to to do this this gripping mm. maneuver. Um, they have a unique material that they call PDMS, and they say it's quite liquid, almost like olive oil, which makes casting it uh, over you know hair thin rod like template you know a thing and it beads <laughs> up into drops so these three guys discovered a way to heat treat this material to slightly gelatinize it which makes this you know process possible they smooth it out and one of the hardest tasks they had was removing the tubes from the cylindrical template without destroying them because they're so fine and they're so delicate basically uh, they had to use a tool that looks much like a, a tiny little wire stripper to pull it out of the casing that they formed this thing in um so it's right. it's a it's just astonishing to look at. There's a little animated uh, GIF on the article. We'll put it in the in the show notes. The link to the article where it's wrapping around this one millimeter thick uh, fiber, and you just you watch this thing just sort of curl up like a like a little finger and grab onto this thing. It's super cool, uh, and you know we're looking at paving the way for microsurgery. And, mm-hmm. you know, many, many other applications for this. Uh, you, you don't need tweezers to grab something with force at two points. You just use these two little things. <laughs> you know, it's it, this is a potentially revolutionary uh, invention. It was really, really cool to, to read this article. And with that, we come to the end of show number nine of Citizens of Tech. Uh, one more time, I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. With me has been Eric Zutphen. At Zutphen on Twitter. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Episode 10. 10 episodes. 10 episodes already. Yeah, we're getting there. We're just, just about. <laughs> and then from there, you know, it, now that now that you mentioned that, Eric, we should just let you know, listeners, we got a lot of positive feedback about Citizens of Tech. A few of you even told us it's my new favorite podcast. Thank you for saying such nice things. Um, we are still in the Packet Pushers community show incubator and, uh, where we go next with citizens of tech is probably get a website launch, get its own feed and that kind of stuff. So we'll let you know before it happens. There's no surprises, but you might need to, to shift your feeds from the community feed and Packet Pushers to a citizens of tech feed of its very own. seems like it's about time. Cause, uh, from what I'm, what we're hearing, you guys seem to like the show. Yeah. We'll keep on making it. If you guys keep listening. And we'll uh, get it up on its own 
platform and we'll be able to continue to produce uh, quality content that you guys enjoy. Quality with a K. Quality with a K. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, everyone. <laughs> Have a good week.